Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University in the city of Motown, Detroit, Michigan. I am your host, Dan Galadner, and as always, down the street via the internet is my co-producer, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. So school is over for you guys. Did you go celebrate afterwards? We did. We went to the Detroit Zoo, and now my... uh child is in uh what they are calling summer programs oh yeah summer school to uh help my six-year-old to read better oh very nice given the year we just had <laughs> exactly exactly as everybody says it was you know as we know it was a difficult year my kids all survived it's they're fine one's going now off to college and the other two are just i mean recouping from a lot you know the world on zoom so we survived too didn't we we did we did one way or another one way or another as parents and also as working online and as parents having kids online oh let's see that started in it was the end of february 2020 the first high school closed in washington state and like dominoes schools across the united states began shutting down from childcare to college campuses all became quiet Schools scrambled to get virtual learning going. Food programs were started up to deliver the food to students' homes with their learning packets. And for a full year, most schools were living on Zoom screens and then some sort of hybrid started. I mean, parents were on the edge for most of the year. And to you all parents, including myself and Troy, I raise a glass. For all those students with screen burnout and so many more issues that I cannot comprehend my hat off to you, job well done. And it's been the hardest learning environment ever by far for any students that have to go through this in many decades. So again, I raise my hat. But last but not least, a big pint of ale is raised with a whiskey back to all the school employees, parents, custodians, administration, school personnel, and of course, the teachers. What you've done in the blink of an eye was extraordinary. You were heroes to America for most of the year, and then all of a sudden the scapegoats. Society started blaming teachers again, saying they were selfish and didn't understand what was going on and leave it to others to decide their fate. Yeah, what else is new, guys? One minute, our public school employees are the best things ever. And then in a blink of an eye, they are the reason that Johnny and Jill can't read. Now, the reason I bring this is up because because our podcast today is about teachers, specifically why we blame teachers. It is my great pleasure to talk to Diane Diamako-Palowitz about her book that came out last year called Blaming Teachers, Professionalization Policies and the Failure of Reform in American History. Diane explores how reforms within the education system and how we treat teachers from the 1800s to the present day circumvents the idea of teacher professionalism. And what I like to call the American society mansplaining everything to teachers and basically how bureaucracy muddles innovation in the classroom. It reminds me of a story that Albert Shanker, president of the AFT from 1974 to 1997, would say about professionalism in the teaching corps. It was his first month teaching, and he was having a hell of a time with classroom management and getting the lessons completed when he saw the vice principal poke his head in to see what was going on. Shanker thought to himself, great, someone to help. The vice principal enters and says, Mr. Shanker, there's a piece of paper on the floor that is very unprofessional and just walks out. Dr. Palowitz earned her PhD from NYU, spent her postdoc year visiting professor at Brown University, and was assistant professor at George Mason University, where she served as professor in charge of education policy doctoral specialization, and was named the University Teacher of Distinction. Currently, she teaches at the University of North Dakota, 
as an assistant professor in the Department of Education, Health, and Behavior. Behavior. She has been published in numerous newspapers and journals. Oh, and, and she was a recipient of the Albert Shanker Fellowship for Research and Education. That is a research grant to come to the Ruther Library to use AFT collections or related educational collections. So enjoy the interview with Diana Demako Palowitz about her wonderful book, Blaming Teachers, Professionalization Policies, and the Failure of Reform in American History. <laughs> Thank you for joining our podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Of course, you're the superstar. I mean, I need a superstar on our podcast. So, um, but read your book and was reading it. I was thinking we all have those kind of moments of starting a project thinking this is, this is the moment that I want. This is what I want to talk about. So, so what was your drive in writing this book? What inspired you to keep writing it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that and, you know, I started writing this book before I realized I was writing a book, you know, <laughs> I was um, a grad student. I was just starting my PhD in history of ed at NYU. And um, it was like a couple of years after that kind of NCLB moment. So everybody is talking about, you know, quality, professionalism, all of, all of these words are just everywhere. Um, and then I was in a labor seminar, my first or second year there with with the amazing Danny Walkowitz. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, that at the labor seminar was go do a project, <laughs> go into an archive and, and do a project and see what you find. And so, you know, at NYU, we have the Tamament Wagner labor archive, which was just incredible. So, you know, I wandered into there. I'm like, what do you have? And they had the UFT collection. And so I'm like, I guess this makes sense for me. History of education, a labor seminar, I guess I should poke around. And so as I'm reading through these things and I'm reading things that, you know, Charles Kogan is saying and Rebecca Simonson is saying and all these folks that at the time, their names really didn't mean anything to me. What I am seeing, though, is that they're all talking about professionalism like all of them, like, you know, they're all, this word is everywhere. And like, and, and there's, they're saying it is like, they're defending something. Like they're having an argument amongst themselves about this idea of professionalism. Like what on earth are they talking about? And then I'm thinking, what on earth are we talking about? You know, we're <laughs> saying this word so much. And so that first project was really about, you know, with the rise of um, collective bargaining and these fights for co- for professionalism, what did that mean? And at that time, there were also, it was, what I was finding was that it was also infused with this idea of masculinity, like Kogan and, and later Shank, Shanker are kind of making the case that, you know, us, our, our, our folks, our teachers now are more professional, more masculine, more rugged than those other teachers, right? It was okay to teach them, to treat them the way that we did, but not us, because we are professionals in, in a much more kind of masculinized way. Um, so I did that project, and I just realized that there was so much more. I mean, the art, there was so much more in the archive that I couldn't even touch in that one semester, and so that kind of just set me off thinking about what are we meaning about profession? What, what is the role of the union in, 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 in public schools? And then that gave way to my dissertation. Um, and then from there, the dissertation kind of grew into the book. And so I guess at what point did I know I was writing a book? Like, I don't think I believed it until like I held the book. Of, oh, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> 
But a lot of the time it was like, I was just kind of, you know, wandering through archives, you know, kind of following one curiosity after another. Right. Right. And, and that's, and that's kind of how books are. They form how papers are formed sometimes. It's just like evolves. It's like, oh, before you know it, there it is. Now, you keep saying that you keep discovering the word professionalism. And as we know, doctors and lawyers are all considered professionals and are held in the highest esteem. But you you, you keep bringing up the word professional and, and describing teachers. So what were they referring to for the past hundred years of a teacher being a professional? Right. Yeah, that was exactly my question. <laughs> I was. <laughs> obsession, you know. So what I find in the book is that, you know, teachers were kind of engulfed in this, like this language of profession or more really more aptly, I should say, engulfed in this, like this sea of reform in an effort to professionalize, right? Since the of like our earliest common schools. So middle of the 1800s, I'm seeing this emerge. Um, But aside from the term professional, we really see very few um, similarities between what other, the more traditional professional occupations like doctors and lawyers went through, right? Instead, so, you know, if you think about this from a sociological profession, that sociologists define profession um, or they think of professionalism as linked to status, authority, autonomy, maybe even expertise too, right? Teachers gained nothing of that sort from the professionalization reforms, right? Instead, what I find in the book is that professionalization policies ended up limiting teachers' voices, right? It ended up putting them in the midst of this highly systematized and routinized environment, all in the name of bureaucratic efficiency. So it was similar in name, but in process, took very different forms um, for what we see in other fields. And I think for me, that's, that's a deeply gendered story. Right. So I'm going to go on a little tangent here, um, <laughs> going off script here. Um, so, but it seemed like it was a, a constant um, look at gender and as well as race in a way yeah. that you are a professional, however, yeah. and it's, and, and what, what these, these reformers or what these superintendents or what people in charge of the school boards were saying was like, you're fine with doing that, but we will constantly change things on you right when you get into the groove of what we're talking about, because we know it's better for you. Is, is that something that is very common within the past hundred years? Again, is this the narrative that teachers constantly have to face? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've really summed it up, Dan. I mean, I, what I see and what I try and track in the book are these policy stories, right? That have kind of yeah. taken shape over time. So one of them is that Um, schools can solve social problems. And that's very much linked to this idea that we've just got deficit communities, right? Deficient communities, and we need schools and teachers to fix them, right? And the other policy narrative is that teachers as stand-in mothers can can really be these agents of change here, right? Then of course, the next policy narrative is that, um, yeah, but but teachers are at fault and that's why everything is so bad, <laughs> but I think, you know, part of what we see is that these, these gendered and racialized ideas link to this vision of um, this kind of idealized type of the mother figure, right? This like this white woman who's going to stand in the in front of the classroom to pass on these kinds of tropes and morals and attributes that kids may not be getting 
at home, right? This this was explicit early on. It's much more veiled now, but I think that this idea that um, they could that women could be great stand-in mothers and then also cheap and good rule followers, but that they really couldn't make. Um, decisions, right? They wouldn't be leading the charge. They wouldn't be deciding what the nature of this education looked like. They would just be kind of these conduits. And so, yeah, I think what you're talking about is right to the core of it. Sounds like America's constantly mansplaining the (laughs) female teacher. It's like, we know better than what you are doing. So just listen to us and you'll be fine. Totally. I mean, I love that phrase so much because it really is what it comes down to, right? I think, you know, so very early on, we see a couple things emerge, right? We see this idea that um, public schools are important for society and that, you know, public school teachers can be these agents of change. But then, like, immediately it's like, ah, the teachers aren't doing what we need them to do, right? They're not good enough, right? They're not, they're not meeting our, our, our goals, right? And so the only thing we can possibly do is teacher-proof the schools. And what I track in the book and see happening, and even today, is this kind of development of a bureaucracy that limits teachers' voices, right? Um, so that so that they become isolated to their classroom. Right? So Dan Lurie has talked has written about that as the you know the egg crate kind of phenomenon, right? Teachers are limited to their classrooms, but even once they're there, they're not deciding what they teach or how to measure if the students have learned it, you know, and that's become, um, that's one of the ways that we see the standardization and this sort of blame take root even more today than it was decades ago, right? Decades ago, before we had this kind of infatuation with testing at the national level, um, teachers may have closed their doors and said, all right, folks, (laughs) we're going to do a cool project, right? (laughs) But right now what we're finding is, you know, teachers come in and even as they have these creative ideas and and as veteran teachers may have done those creative ideas in the past, it's this very explicit trade-off of we might do this and I might have my students learn these particular skills, but those may not be on the test. And if they're not and they don't do on the test, that's a direct reflection on me, my quality, my professionalism. Um, And so that kind of systematization and, 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 um, you know, kind of surveillance has just magnified rather than kind of reduced. Right. Exactly. Um, Now, this brings me up to ideas like, all right, the teachers are being trained, though, to teach a certain way. So these let's just say male leaders are setting up the curriculum in the teacher, you know, the normal schools and in the teacher schools. Actually, Hey, you, you described the normal school and what it became very well in your book. And I've, one thing I've always wondered why it was called normal schools in the first place, (laughs) but could you walk us through that? I thought that was really, you you laid it out very nicely. It was like, here's what normal schools were. And then they, they became because of one that we need to track and understand what teachers are doing Two, also this is a big money maker for the universities all of a sudden so why don't you walk us through that that was very interesting yeah i i do find that to be one of the most interesting kind of stories in the book or things that i found right so we do have we have normal colleges so they're you know this idea that teachers never had any preparation is not particularly well-founded. Chris Ogren has a really nice book about normal education and what that meant to the young women who were getting that education. It was like exposing them to an educational experience that they wouldn't have had access to without that. 
Um, so a lot of teachers are going, particularly in bigger cities, are going through normal schools and they're getting their preparation. We also did have big universities at that time, but they kind of want nothing to do with teacher training and are pretty explicit about the idea that that is um, that's like a status killer. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that what they're doing in the university is serious research, right? So there, we see a lot of emphasis on doctoral education, on the science of education, and on training leaders, um, education leaders. And so it's a real male-dominated space. By, you know, the Great Depression years, there's something shifts. And, and really what it is, is that, you know, those, those gendered assumptions are still there. Um, the pressures that we put on the public schools are still there. But what changes is we have this, this market influence that is so profound. So right around the, the Great Depression years, you know, all universities are beginning to really struggle with tuition. <laughs> and, you know, they're, we're dependent, we're relying on our students to, to remain solvent. And so we're really in this anxious moment. At the same time, though, public school teaching becomes an incredibly attractive um, prospect because there are jobs, because they're getting paid, right? <laughs> like, you know, in New York City, teachers aren't missing a paycheck. You know, they're not getting laid off. We're not seeing teachers on breadlines, things like that. So it's a desirable profession. And so school districts are finding that they have way more folks who want to teach than they can actually hire. And it's at that time they feel like well, we can be a little bit choosier, right? And also we're going to turn to schools of education to help us kind of sort through <laughs> all these folks and maybe even to, to help them create the teachers that we wish we had, right? Because now they have this kind of new market authority to ask more, right? Um, whereas, you know, in another time you really couldn't ask that much because you didn't have this deep, deep roster of folks to choose from. And so they turn to schools of education. And so folks like specifically like NYU and Columbia Teachers College at Columbia, um, who had before been kind of icy to the idea of training teachers, all of a sudden were like, hmm, interesting opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when the city and the state is saying, you know, we want you to go through uh, and get your degree in, in some kind of education field um, as a pathway into the schools, Faculty and school leaders at these universities see this as a pathway to grow as opposed to shutter their doors. So they're really excited. They take in all these teachers. And this is really a moment where we begin to see these kinds of programs flourish and, um, you know, schools of education begin to grow, right? We don't see them kind of struggling during these years. But at the same time, they are struggling with the idea of, so what do we do with all these women, <laughs> who are here, right? Because they really, these colleges of education had to find themselves through this kind of elitist rubric about what serious education looked like, what serious research looked like. And all of that was sort of inextricably tied up with these ideas of masculinity. And so to have all of these younger women all of a sudden was this like identity crisis. And so it's at that very moment where we see them start to decide, hey, you know what that kind of education these teachers need? practical learning, applied knowledge, right? Which was very different from the kind of preparation they had been giving their school leaders. And it also, I think most importantly, sort of marks this sort of spur, this different trajectory that teacher education takes as opposed to what doctor, what medical and legal education is doing during these years. I mean, all of this was in the name of what is most appropriate 
for our new clientele of students, what gets them through as quickly as possible. Um, and so, you know, and all of this was spoken about as a professional education, but from the start, you can see how that professional education was kind of inhibiting what teachers could do and was also laden with all of these kind of derogatory ideas about what teachers could possibly be capable of. So you have an increase of teachers coming out of these schools. Yeah. Um, the universities are making some good money, so they're happy. But you're also generating a lot of um, uh, workers, okay? And how they're trained is to do this, to be docile, to be timid, to be like, you follow the rules and you'll be fine. But you have an influx of so many workers coming out there. So, of course, the unions start popping up, right? Um, yeah. Teacher unions have been around since the early part of the, uh, the 20th century, but uh, with the Great Depression, really growth of membership there. But what could, but still, they are collectively begging. Um, what was the role of a union pre-1961? Yeah, it's a great point, you know, and I, I think that idea of collectively begging like, does sum it up. I mean, so what I would say is that um, the rise of collective bargaining is no doubt a critical turning point in this story. But I don't necessarily, and I know this is not even what you're suggesting at all, but there's also really important stories of what unions are doing before this period. But it is kind of a depressing story, right? We do see these powerful statements about what um, teaching could look like, these ideas of how we could change the, the schools. Um, you know, teachers are organizing now, they're organizing in, and there are lots of small organizations. So, you know, even just by nature of the, their number and small size, they're disempowered. Um, but they're they're generating really interesting and important ideas. And especially for women early on, their organizations become a key um, mechanism, a key sort of driver for um, for suffragism, for maternal and marital rights, right? So they can work and not get fired. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They're really limited in what they can accomplish because policymakers in the school and the state really aren't giving them any credence whatsoever. And so, you know, these amazing sort of things that I'm finding in the archive, they don't really make it much further, right? Like I found evidence of, you know, um, organization leaders writing to school district leaders saying, we'd like to partner with you. We'd like to do this study. We'd like to, and, it, and it's either met with silence or no, thank you. Like, why would we want to do something like that? So, you know, it had to be incredibly frustrating because folks were organizing, but they just, um, they really were not able to make any kind of of headway because folks just weren't listening. It was the, it was not set up for their voices to be heard or or given any credibility. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I call it a collective begging because totally. you're begging for the raise, you're begging for this. And and there were moments where, like in Detroit, the Detroit Federal Teacher Federation of Teachers aligned with AFL and then the AFL CIO, so they had the power of forming these slates on school boards with the UAW and other unions saying. Yeah, we'll get this and this is what we can do. We got to help us out. Um, but that was rare. I mean, this happened in New York, Detroit and the big cities. But when you when you go into the smaller towns and smaller cities, yeah, it was mostly just please give us some more money. Please give us something um, and that. But then then 1961 happens. And then you have the explosion of collective bargaining, the teacher power. And everybody's going is like, what is happening here? I thought everything the, the public and, and administrators are going, I thought everything was fine. What do you mean you have to join a union? So what kind of power 
with collective bargaining came to teacher unions. What, what was the perception there? What, what power did they really gain and not gain uh, centering around the concept of professionalism? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, you know, so of course they gain significant and real material benefits. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that, you know, they gained a unified voice um, which had its benefits, but also came with problems for teachers, right? That, um, you know, that all of a sudden there's a place for teachers as a collective whole to make arguments about education, about, um, you know, work standards and all of this. But then as we know, right, like there are like millions of teachers and school districts vary widely. And so, you know, you know, I remember one, one thing that made me giggle in the archives, I found, um, you know, in the 1970s, um, you know, Shanker was this kind of, you know, folks loved him or hated him, you know, and so he was doing exciting things for teachers, but not all of them really agreed what he was doing either. And it was after one of his contract negotiations, tons of teachers wrote in, like, you sold us out. We didn't want this. You know, who did this benefit? Maybe it benefited you and your platform. So they were pretty angry. And he was getting so much of this that he had his assistant just kind of write a form letter. <laughs> like, your letter's been received. You know, thanks. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> you know, so I think that's the trade-off, right? That there's there's more of, um, there is more of that unified voice, but I think maybe individual rank and file classroom teachers may not feel like they've experienced much more voice, right, in their, in their schools. Like there is a more, there's a set up grievance process and things like that. I would say that um, what some teachers would find themselves in though in the in, in this trade-off, right? As there's a seat for the teachers union at a policy table, right? At a at a district, at a state, even at a national level, thanks to what the union has done, teachers also find themselves navigating another very large bureaucracy that's driven by its own institutional interests, right? And so sometimes the institutional interests of the AFT or any union is not necessarily aligned with like what the individual member wants. And so that's com that's complex. And so how does that fit with this idea of profession? I would say one thing that I see that is complicated is that um, even as the union has pushed back pretty powerfully against some of these more um, uh, troubling definitions of professionalism, right? Like that you just sit, stay in your lane, do what you're told. Um, Kogan wrote about, you know, school leaders use the term professionalism as kind of like a naughty, naughty, you know, like a way to <laughs> stay in line. Um, but I don't see them really recrafting this idea of what could a professional teacher look like, like in a totally structurally different way, right? It's very much like we have this box that teachers exist within this highly routinized workspace of the public schools. And so we're kind of tinkering on the margins in there instead of really pushing back and redefining um, what would this look like if teachers really did take the reins. And, and, and you kind of hit on I that hit on too that. in your book about um, that is still this masculine role of telling the teachers, female teachers is like, we know what's best for you and we will do this for you. Um, and it's, it's, it seems like some perpetual cycle for teachers that you will constantly be mansplained. And I'll bring that up again. Why not? Um, <laughs> where are we now though? Where are we now with the love hate relationship with teachers? Cause there is, there's always this give and take. There's always this back and forth. What similarities can you glean from your book to see where we are now with respecting teachers? Yeah. 
And this is the depressing part, Dan. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this is the depressing part, you know. So the book was in press, like turning into a physical thing um, before the pandemic started, um, like just before. And it came out in August. So we're like just early in the pandemic. But so when you read the book, there's not a mention of COVID or pandemics. Like I couldn't ever have imagined that we would be in a circumstance like this, right? That that we would be talking about the book just virtually, that we would be dealing with all of this. And yet the book is about this moment, right? The book is about this. So like, am I a fortune teller in some way? <laughs> not at all, right? This is really what the story tells, the history here is the story about how um, this policy narrative of blaming teachers is the grammar of public schooling. It's how we do public education in America, right? So, you know, I think about um, what we see in this moment, right? It's it's like how we expect schools to solve social problems, how we expect teachers to go in and just kind of fix these issues without resources and to do it when policymakers and, polic- and politicians have largely punted on those matters, right? And then most importantly, how we exclude teachers from the decision-making processes, right? I remember back when we were thinking about our schools going to open, are they not going to open? I remember it was parents and teachers all standing by like, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, so not only are we excluding them from that conversation and not giving them any kind of expert voice, but we're blaming them <laughs> and it doesn't work out, right? Like that's where we are now, right? When we think about, gosh, you know, school reopenings could have gone so much better if only weren't for those teachers who cared so much about their own health. <laughs> And we always heard that in the past, or we, you and I have read these 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 archives about, well, if if the teachers would just get out of the way and not can, and stop thinking about themselves, oh, they're so spoiled, oh, they're so this. And then even before unions, it was like, how can they dare think about salary? You know, right. oh, how dare they actually sit in front of the school begging for money during the Great Depression in Chicago? You know, yeah, it's it's the constant thing of just putting putting the teacher down for even just trying and for just loving their classrooms. Um, and eventually they're going to crack. And we saw that in 2018 with West Virginia, Oklahoma, and other states where the big red ed movements were spreading. And it was basically teachers had enough. And what's amazing about these, these, these walkouts were they're in red states, not the big union strongholds of New York, Wisconsin. Well, not Wisconsin anymore. We won't talk about that. But oh um, California, stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah. um, what moment? What moment did you see in your book that, or where a teacher, a group of teachers, um, finally had enough and exposed what was going on behind those, behind the door? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I see in the book is that teachers have always been doing that, right? They've always been fighting that fight um, in, in small ways, in large ways. They've been doing that, but they've been doing it within a system that's been set up explicitly to tamp down their voices, right? So this whole story, right, that, you know, if only teachers shouted louder, or if only they organized better, or if only they said it differently, well, then it's a total myth. Right. I mean, one of my favorite examples comes early in the book with Emma Daly. Emma Daly is a teacher in New York City, the early 1920s, and she just does not like the direction her school is heading in. Right. Like she's she's she feels very much like, you know, she doesn't approve of the decisions her principal is making. But at this point, she's really limited 
with what she can do, how she can kind of make her voice heard. And so, you know, as she thinks on this, the the best thing she comes up with is I'm going to write a letter to the superintendent, but she knows at this time she has no coverage. So she's going to do it anonymously. So she writes two letters and one of them is signed like a teacher from PS, whatever. I don't remember the number of the school. And another is like a member of the teachers federation of PS, whatever it was. Um, the letters make its way to the super, their way to the superintendent, and he is livid. <laughs> it's like, who on earth had thought they had the right to send me such a letter, right? So he kind of charges his two district superintendents to go and get to the bottom of this. And so this, these two guys show up at the school, and they're asked, who sent this letter? And the teachers are like, silent. <laughs> like, no one is going to fess up to this. They're silent. Um that's not satisfying, right? So they commission a handwriting expert who gets the handwriting <laughs> of all the teachers in the schools. And lo and behold, they match it to Emma Daly's handwriting and they threaten to throw her in jail. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, and so she has to tearfully confess, yes, this was me, um, you know, that this wasn't, you know. So, <laughs> and so the lesson though is, the lesson was loud and clear for folks, right? Like speak up at your own peril, right? And teachers did that, right? I think one of the most um, fun sources that I found, or one of the things I appreciated it the most were these like anonymous letters to the editor in newspapers where teachers are writing about how they really feel um, because they feel like they don't have another way to be heard. So, I mean, it's a long way to say, way to say teachers have been. They have been doing this. Um, I think some of it is like, when is this policy window? When is when is the time right where the public is willing to listen? You know, and I think one of the things that I see here is that teachers today and in the past live on kind of one side of this coin that flips like in the drop of a hat, right? So on one side of that coin, we've got teacher as savior, right? We love them. We're grateful for how self-sacrificing they are, you know, and this is where we were at the beginning of the pandemic, like March, 2020, right? Like we're going to, the teachers are going to drive through neighborhoods and the kids will be screaming and the parents will be waving. And everyone is so grateful because they realize, oh my goodness, this is what teachers do. (laughs) I drink coffee all day, you know, we're with their own kids. And, um, but on the flip side of that coin, is teacher as problem, right? Teacher is the blame. Teachers are greedy. They are self-interested. And that's pretty much where we are now, right? Schools didn't open as quickly as folks would have liked. Forget the fact that we didn't worry about vaccinating teachers first and foremost. Forget about the fact that we didn't really give more resources. And, and teachers are thinking to themselves like, uh, I have to bring my own paper towels and soap into school. And you're telling me that you're going to supply masks and, and all the other things that we need. Like they're skeptical. Right. And so so right now we're at this moment where, you know, we flipped. And so I think that and both sides of that coin are deeply deprofessionalizing. Right. Teachers don't want to be. They don't want parades. They don't want to be the savior, the self-interested savior. They don't want to be blamed. They I think most teachers want to be respected. <laughs> for their expert opinion, right? Like they want to be heard. Um, And so, you know, we're so far from that right now. You bring up the word respect and I've heard this so much in the past four, five, 10 years, especially with the rise of the Tea Party, the Mm -hmm. disrespecting 
everybody. And teachers have been getting in the forefront of that. They are just the most disrespected. I hear from the kids sometimes. I hear it from other parents. Um, I remember I was visiting friends a while back and they, and one friend said is like, oh, those, those, those teachers, they're, they're the ones the worst thing for my kids right now. Of course, I, I could not stand back and, and allow them to do that. And but if there's a perception here again, parents still don't have that main trust that te- teachers did kind of have that trust. Don't you think back in the, the, the 30s, 40s and 50s, you respected your teacher yeah. and what they said? Yeah, I would say yes and no. I mean, it probably is all relative, right? Like, I think it, it probably it shifts. You know, I did find a piece um in the 1940s um, and where, you know, it's a Ben Fine is writing a piece in the New York times. And he's saying, you know, we've never had a more dejected group of teachers. Nobody wants to do this. They hate how they're treated. They feel really terrible. Now I'm sure if you take some teachers today and bring them back to the 1940s, they'd be like, this is great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This is wonderful. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the core point that you're making is absolutely right. You know, that, that this idea of blaming teachers is is the policy lens we have used to understand public education, right? Like, it, and it's just that basic kind of logic, right? Like, public schools can improve society. Teachers are critical to public schools. Schools aren't doing what they're supposed to do because of teachers. <laughs> you know, and so it's be it's this way of defining the problem that has shaped generations of school leaders, of of how parents understand this, right? But what if we define the problem in another way? What if we thought about resources? What if we thought about social inequality? You know, all of that would change the kinds of policies that we put forward. But that's what I meant earlier when I talk about this idea of teacher bashing or teacher blame as the grammar public schooling. It's how we do school. You know, it's why we put kids in rows. It's why we have a block schedule. You know, it's, it's just how we do American public education right now. It kind of reminds me of when um, Dana Goldstein's book, right? Yeah. Her book on, on teacher wars, where she goes into the theory of the moral panic, with, which sociologists say is like policymakers and the media. They all kind of gang up and make the worst situation of a worse situation, make it worse than worse, like like welfare mothers in the 80s. You know, they just yeah. find an example and just blow it out of proportion. So is that how we, I guess that's how we talk about teachers. We go from yeah. disdain to high regard back and forth. Um, what kind of narrative have you found in your research, especially I'm thinking too, that here's, here's teachers trying to go along with everything and they keep getting bashed, but we failed to realize that it's a superintendent or a principal come in, a new one comes in, they have their own idea of how things should be run. Right, right. when they're getting used to the old superintendent. Right. And now we have this other shit. So what's what's the narrative? What do we come from that? What do we do right. about that? What do we do about that? I know. Well, that's really, you know, that's what I mean by that two-sided coin, right? That, you know, teachers, I don't know if we're coming or going, right? Like, how do you <laughs> feel about me today? Um, but yeah, I mean, your point, I found, I'm trying to remember where I found this one piece, but in, in the 40s, maybe it was a little later, I want to say in the 40s, one of the things that a lot of teachers unions were doing, were writing these great songs, <laughs> you know, and they would have these sing-alongs and, um, and they would be set to the, to the, you know, the tune of some popular song at that time. But when you read the lyrics, they're like some pretty heavy stuff in here about how they're feeling about the schools, about how they're being treated, all of this. And, you know, in one of these songs, teachers are talking about, you know, 
these passing fads, these passing educational fads, right? Like we went to to the ed school and they told us to teach this way. Well, now that's not how you teach anymore. And now they're telling us we have to teach another way. And, you know, and this school leader came in and this is how we do it now. And so they're very aware of that. I mean, they're saying about it together, you know, (laughs) teachers are aware of that very clearly. And I think the real key here is that that shows how, you know, it's not just that teachers don't have power at the bargaining table or didn't have power at the bargaining table for a long time. That's collective bargaining helped us change that. But what we still need to do, I think this next most important frontier is teachers don't have power at the decision-making table when it comes to curriculum, when it comes to what good pedagogy looks like, when it comes to how we measure student learning and and if we measure student learning and all of that, right, we still see that very much as an active imposition. So it's like, you know, districts have said, you know, they've acquiesced the idea that, okay, you will bargain for contracts, right? And that's, I think this is one of the most interesting things that we saw out in LA where teachers got basically, the district was going to offer them the pay hike that they wanted. And like, we're still striking because that's not just what we want, right? We want smaller classrooms. We want you to tamp down the privatization of public education. We want more resources, right? And I think the idea that we only really listen to teachers when they threaten to walk out of schools or when they actually walk out of schools is so dysfunctional, right? (laughs) When you're ready to blow this thing up, that's when we'll listen to you. But aside from that, stay in your lane. Right. So I think like that's that next frontier. Right. That it's not just bargaining for material benefits, because if we really are listening to what teachers are saying, right, when those those walkouts that you talked about 2018, they're not just talking about higher, higher pay. That's like the very tip of the iceberg. Um, so I think that's like this next generation, this next wave. You're absolutely right. I mean, you gave a great example of UTLA in Los Angeles. Chicago did it. You know, CTU build these community type things and community bargaining. And we also saw in St. Paul and Minneapolis and all that kind of stuff. So, but we can only find that kind of stuff coming into an archive, right? All that stuff. So as always on our podcast, we love to hear where you guys are doing all your digging, especially at the Ruther, what kind of collections you use, but um, you did some amazing work um, digging in New York city, uh, finding stuff. So where did you go? Who'd you see? What kind of cool things did you find? Being in the archives is the absolute best part of any project. And I can't wait to start the next one to get in the archives again. I mean, I still remember, I don't know if you, Dan, but I remember coming and hanging out with you and going out for falafel lunch. <laughs> that was just you know, so much fun. But yeah, I mean, I um, I benefited from amazing archival collections, incredible archivists who knew so much about it. So obviously you, Dan, Tamamit Wagner was a treasure trove the Keel Center at Cornell, um, but then also like local municipal archives like the Chicago Historical Museum, um, the New York City Municipal Archives. There were just great resources that I just love diving into. And you know, one of the things um, as the project came closer to done, um, and I didn't feel like I had to necessarily get into the archives, I was looking for a specific thing. Um, all the collections are being digitized. And so that became, that was amazing. You know, I was able to send an email and, and have this primary source in my laptop. And that was just an incredible experience. But as I think about it though, you know, I hope that that's not what the nature of historical research looks like, right? Because I, I was always wondering, you know, and what would have been the next document in that folder, (laughs) you know? 
And what would have been the other thing? And if I had spent some time talking with the archivist who went all through all this thing, you know, what would they have known that I didn't even think to look at? So, you know, that kind of like digging through the archives was just and is just the best part of any project. I mean, talking about it now as it's done is pretty cool. But in terms of the fun of the project, being in the archives is just hard to beat. That's right. We cannot deny the smell of the archive or the research. I mean, right? that's a real thing. It is a <laughs> it real is, thing. <laughs> I always hear that. It's like, oh, the smell of a box. <laughs> the smell yeah. of the old paper. I mean, you, may, you may be desensitized to it because it's just become your normal smell, you know? But like when you go and you're like, yeah, I know what's about to happen. I've got my pencil, you know? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Well, Diana, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I had a blast. This was fun because, of course, this is my topic. I love talking about teachers and teacher history. So thank you so much for my rambling and all that kind of stuff. I had a blast. Not at all. Yeah, thank you, Dan. This is a total treat. I love spending some time with you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right, how was that? All right, sounded good. Damn, getting good at this shit. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I would be sitting here for another hour. Um, I mean, I I don't know for sure that that's how you pronounce your name, but you said it the same way every time as far as... (laughs) Which is a start, isn't it? So at least you were consistent. Mrs. Bath, Ada's kindergarten teacher, miracle worker. Miracle worker. Yeah. (laughs) Turning, turning online kindergarten into something that the kindergarteners you know were engaged with uh-huh. and learned during uh-huh. i can't imagine i can't imagine neither can i <laughs> did you get something nice for your teacher yeah did we do that when we were kids did our parents do that um, I, I remember giving my teacher coffee mugs <laughs> every year because <laughs> I'm sure they all need more coffee mugs. Uh, of course, they have a whole rack <laughs> in the garage of boxes <laughs> with coffee cups in them. Yeah, I cannot remember what I got to my teachers. I gave him heart, heart, heart attacks, heartburn. I remember one <laughs> yeah. teacher actually said he he was from he was from Spain, so he had this accent. He's like, "You all are making my heart bleed." Because <laughs> <laughs> we were giving him such heartburn for being such assholes. 